0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today we are the next episode of Flux. This episode was created by Bhavani Kunju Lakshmi, a recent graduate of the UCL Institute of Education and staff writer at Feminism in India. Bhavani's episode explores the meaning of colonization and decolonization in international development and education. We might think we know what colonization is, the history, the actors involved, the exploitation, but what does it feel like? And what would it mean to decolonize? And what would that feel like? Bovani explores these questions. I hope you enjoy today's show.
1: I can't tell the full story in this half-an-hour podcast, it makes me very angry and I feel my shoulders tighten up because um, I feel like a lot remains unsaid.
2: Ababa, the Mopada, the Operanda, then Debakalilang and Ulla Dunumi, Ulavan, Maraku Killa, Killa Tarka Mila, Chadakamula, Layel, Layengilan, Kalchebeku Killa, Adakamundo, Kamundo, Rikelum, Riku Kil, Rikilum, or Dapu Killa, Swelpa, Wum, Pariku Killa, Adituvari, Nikavum, Adakilum, Matipa, Dilla, Bakakakal Kumursebek, you want Takapatipumilla, Filpadin, the Puranaranja, Aragalil Kumarigal, Parayapula, Ida Baba Humaya, Jadasical, Lidunda, Dum, Dum, I always like to pretend that, you know, I'm up in heaven and, you know, God is asking me, well, Bill, what was it that you liked the most? And I would always answer that. What I most wanted for myself was to be able to be free, to be self-loving, to all of those things. And that life has allowed me to have that. It's a tremendous gift and a tremendous need to share with
1: others. Recalling the life that I had left behind in Kerala I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but growing up, there was definitely a time when I actually dreamt of having an arranged marriage. I mean, I bought what was sold to me. Around me, I didn't see a different model. There wasn't a woman who was dating or at least openly dating. I I did hear about the ones who eloped with men and brought shame to their families. But it was terrifying to even imagine being one of them. So I thought an arranged marriage was the future for me. And of course, my mother taught us that it would be up to my future husband to decide how long I would continue studying or if I would quote-unquote be allowed to work. So I didn't want to plan anything until I met my husband at 18 because he would then make all my decisions for me anyway. So what's really the point of planning? I also remember when this narrative began to change in my mind. I woke up one morning. I was around nine years old at the time. I was the last one to wake up and I went into the living room where my father and my uncle were sitting at the dining table sipping tea. The women in the family, my mother, my aunts, they were just standing around the table, perhaps ready to rush the kitchen on command. And they were discussing, I mean, the men were discussing my sister's arranged marriage and the specifics of the next steps. I mean, the women were also contributing to the discussion, definitely not with strong opinions, but just comments, mostly agreeing with the men. And I stood there wondering why my sister wasn't there. Also, I couldn't help but worry that in nine years' time, when I turned 18, would they be having the same conversation about whom I would be marrying without me even being in that room? Would I also be marrying a stranger? Could I even imagine what that person might be like? I mean, would that even matter? Because all that would matter would be whoever my father had in mind. All that would matter would be what my uncle, my mother and maybe the brokers could imagine. So we have marriage brokers, you know, they're very similar to real estate brokers. These brokers would be approached by men or their parents. The broker would understand their demands and needs, their checklist of requirements for what the bride must be like. Then the brokers would start looking for a suitable proposal or a quotation that matches their specific set of requirements cast, check, family reputation, check, skin color, check, cooking skills, check, the length of her hair, check, purity, check, height, check, education, check, weight, check, family's wealth, check, age, check. But that's not how Kerala is understood by supposedly progressive academics. The standard story heard in Western universities is of how Kerala is great for women. It's all about the Kerala model of development.
3: Kerala is a very interesting case, a southern Indian state, which has very good educational achievements. 99% literacy among adolescents for both boys and girls as against a background of 65% male literacy and 50% female literacy in the nation as a whole. So stunningly above the national average. And in health too, it's stunningly above the national average. It has the same health data as Harlem in New York. Now that's bad for New York, but it's quite good for a poor Indian state and much better again than the national average. So Kerala did that uh, without actually having much economic growth, because its economic policies have been a failure.
0: So take India. Uh, I don't know if how many of you know anything about India, but there's one poor, relatively poor uh, state in India, Kerala, uh, which uh, has an extremely high level of literacy, and also, and specifically, and education generally. And incidentally, of women's education. And that's the reason why fertility goes straight down. It's been a consequence of women's education that you get, and so women's control of what they can do, that literacy, uh, that fertility that goes way down. That's not a, that's a, it's a very poor place. And if you visit it, you see it. It's the one part of India where you can kind of drive around and see people sitting at a, you know, Little bar or something, sitting outside reading uh, newspapers and talking to each other and so on.
3: In, 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 in Kerala, um, that the two factors that explain all the difference, pretty much all the difference, are women's literacy and education and women's gainful employment in earning and income from outside, each of which increase the voice of women. and their agency in family affairs. And no one's lives are as much affected uh, as that of young women from over-frequent rearing and bearing of children. And if they have more boys, fertility rate dramatically comes down. So I think there's that agency issue and where there's also evidence that women's education uh, reduces child mortality, reduces gender discrimination between boys and girls, and so on.
0: Hmm.
1: this is what my university in London tried to teach me. So, Martha Nussbaum, Noam Chomsky and Amartya Sen are the experts on Kerala women. I think narrating is what's making it difficult. I feel powerless when I relive everything. Um... Maybe poetry might bring a safe distance between my experiences and how I'm feeling and I can I can do spoken word without having to explain my feelings. Achyana, Vismaya, Mofiya, Utra, Rifa, the names of Kerala women who lost their lives to derby harassment in the last few months the names of Kerala women who died because of dowry in the last few months. But to Chomsky, Nussbaum and Sen, women in Kerala are literate. Women in Kerala are educated. Women in Kerala have low fertility rate. So what's the problem? Archana was educated. Vismaya was educated. Mofia was educated. utra was educated. Rifa was educated. So how do you explain what happened to them? But Kerala is an utopia of gender equality because a Brahmin man like Sen can agree with white people because Brahminism and whiteness have always joined arms to oppress us, to colonize us, to speak on behalf of us, to shout over our truth, to distort our sense of self, to define who we are as subaltern women. Do they even know that the primary motivation for girls' education in Kerala is hypergamy? Do they even know that the low fertility rate is because 90% of Kerala's married women get sterilized after giving birth? Do they know that women in Kerala are giving birth to the number of children desired by the husband?
2: Having awareness of the need to decolonize and at the same time working within a very colonizing system.
1: They ask me, Why do you talk about decolonization? Why do you and Ereva women talk about decolonization? Ereva is my caste. Do you want to go back to the time before the British colonialism? Do you want to go back to the time when Ereva women like you were enslaved? Do you want to go back to time when a women like you were untouchables? Do you want to go back to time when a women like you did not have the right to cover their breast? Do you want to go back to time when a women like you had to pay taxes for their breast? Do you want to go back to time when a women like you were not even allowed to enter schools? Hypocrite. Call me a hypocrite. Call me a hypocrite for being a student at an elite university in the UK. Call me a hypocrite for being a student at my colonizer's university that erases and writes over my history. Of course, my colonizer's university teaches my oppressors version of reality. Why am I here? If I am to decolonize gender, my gender, a subaltern queer women from Kevla's gender, why am I here? Why am I a student at a department that was once called the colonial department? Why am I a student at a department that was set in place to educate the quote unquote primitives? primitives. That's what they call people like me. The primitives. Why am I in a department that was set in place to teach us who we are so we could be psychologically dominated and colonized? Call me a hypocrite. Call me a hypocrite and ideally wish we could leave it at that. That would have been it if the colonial project was not alive. That would have been it if the university was only teaching a handful of students. That would have been it if colonialism was not playing dress up wearing the costume of international development. But they are teaching their version of the history and who we are to the entire world. They are teaching their version of the history and who we are to the young colonizers. They are teaching their version of the history and who we are to us, to the colonized. Well, let's not call it their version of the history. Their version of the history implies there are multiple versions of history. Like the colonizer's version of history might be as truthful and valid as our version of history. We are not here to take a piece of that cake. We can't eat a cake stained with our ancestors Blood. We can't eat a cake stained with our blood. We can't eat a cake stained with our children's blood. Call us hypocrites. The other is not here to be shamed in the silence. The other is not here to be tamed in the submission. The other is not here to assimilate. The other is here to replace the books in the colonizers' library. We are here. Call us hypocrites. And then um, I would go on to talk about uh, the British. And this is exactly what they're doing now. And it's just called international development. Uh, Yeah, Lela, let me know what you think. And I would love to know, I would love to add something that you um, you would want people to hear.
3: Thanks for your powerful poem. It essentially refers to the issue of epistemic violence. The dominant stories in the West about India are white Savarna or what I call white upper caste stories. White Savarna storytellers have their own criteria, needs, and priorities. We do not hear the stories or critical scholarship of people from historically marginalized and caste oppressed backgrounds their voices remain silenced through violence and ideological dominance. On the other hand, the white Savarna lens dominates through reward structures, funding and research collaboration. I find it intellectually dishonest when I see Savarna upper caste scholars use the discourse of exclusion but maintain silence over the issue of casteism and caste privileges when they talk about India. This tendency is the same as white scholars who ignore the ongoing patterns of coloniality and see globalized forms of structural racism. You see, people do not tend to question the identities that give them power. And this tendency is pervasive in the field of international development. It does not consider its historical and epistemic location instead it assumes a universal voice i understand your anger you find yourself erased through their authoritative narratives i find it offensive when i hear the white savarna scholars pretending to give voice to the voiceless they hold this myth that subaltern does not speak and so the white savarna savior is required to speak on marginalized people's behalf. This belief in my view is internalized casteism and racism. There is an investment in feeling good and looking good rather than asking, how did the mic land in your hand in the first place? They do not unpack the the deeper histories of exploitation. They do not consider reparatory actions that critical anti-caste and anti-race scholars and activists have been asking for decades. They haven't been listening. Spivak once famously asked, can the subaltern speak? I think it's the wrong question. We must ask, can you hear the subaltern speak? Are you willing to pass the mic instead of centering yourself as the authors of marginalized people's stories? Are you willing to decenter yourself epistemically? Are you willing to prioritize reparations?
2: I mean, I got tired of academe. I felt like academe was so much like the dysfunctional family that if I stayed in it um, in the way that I was in it, I would never be well. Because all of the ingredients of the dysfunctional family were present there.
1: That was Bell Hooks. Part of me thinks we haven't really lost her and we never will. She lives on healing us and she lives through us. And her work will live on even after our time. The voice you heard before, that was Leila Kadival. Leila is a brilliant scholar and activist. She's been my mentor for the last two years and at university she's been a support system for many people like me. And this is really important because There aren't many people like Lela who stand on their truth without safely taking the side of authority. And to add a few words about how it went down when I spoke about this to the university. I mean, this audacity to write and tell our story after also having told the stories of our great-grandmothers and grandmothers. But the moment you call it out, you become the problem. So when I raised this as a complaint, which as you can imagine, it's not easy being a student... I knew they were going to tone police me anyway and that's bound to happen when you submit a complaint about and at an institution to the institution that holds power. And the response was disappointing yet not surprising because it's the same pattern they follow. This is how they do it. They will not address the complaint. Instead, they would pathologize the complainee and intellectualize their misuse of power. They would blame it on the trauma of the oppressed and they would just escape accountability, which is quite sick. Because what it shows is the inability to reflect, the inability to do self inquiry the inability to accept when one is wrong. And I think this is the tragedy of people in positions of power and institutions of power. Their privilege affords them a life that doesn't require looking at the mirror. So as soon as a mirror is held up against them by the people they're oppressing, they want to break it. So like a child throwing tantrums, they try to break the complaining. It's transparent and childish. Can you
3: hear the subaltern speak? Are you willing to pass the mic instead of centering yourself as the authors of marginalized people's stories? Are you willing to decenter yourself epistemically? Are you willing to prioritize reparations?
1: I remember the days leading up to my sister's wedding. I felt surprised day after day with what I was witnessing and discovering. My sister, she didn't seem to resist. And I would say she even seemed excited. I wondered if she was just excited because she would no longer be controlled by her parents who until that point decided everything for her. They didn't let her stay out to meet friends outside of school. They controlled who she spoke to. They decided what she wore My parents controlled her so that she won't bring any shame to the family, so that her purity could be preserved, so that she would have value in the market of arranged marriage, so that families with sons would want to make an alliance with our family, so that the broker won't have to work too hard to find her a man, so that the family's honor will not be tainted, so that my mother could be the dutiful woman who raised her daughters to have no opinions, so that my father could be the manly man who knows how to discipline the women in his family. I think she believed that marrying a stranger would set her free. I think there was a time when I also believed that marrying a stranger is what would set me free. But then I also heard how the older women in the family advised the new bride about being hit or being battered by their new husband as the necessary taming of a woman who needed to learn her place or who needs to be taught her place. So, I saw it as my future already decided for me but I wondered if I would also obey and submit like my sister did because not even the women in the family would understand why I wouldn't. In the weeks leading up to my sister's wedding, I also caught up with the scriptic mentions of marital sex something that's offered by a wife to her husband on his demand. And in the years that followed, I wondered if some young women did not protest arranged marriage because it would indeed be a relief to experience this kind of physical intimacy without the guilt, the shame, the stigma attached to anything premarital, without having to hide having sex. We go through our teenage years imagining what it would be like not to have to watch over our shoulders. Just to hold hands with somebody or to be with a person, because all of that was not allowed. Since that's how you bring shame to the family and taint the reputation forever. So, no one really called them quote unquote forced arranged marriages, even though there were clear signs of coercion and physical abuse. So, obey them, be nice to them, do not ever come back complaining about them. It was quite clearly established that any instances of domestic violence would be seen as violence provoked by the woman who possibly arrogantly flaunted her agency and deserved to be hit by her husband, who was simply teaching her a lesson. I'm not telling the story so someone would just come and rescue us. I'm telling the story so you understand how colonialism continues to impact us. We didn't really have arranged marriages or even monogamy until three generations ago. And when I say we, I mean people from my caste and several other communities in Kerala. My caste is Eriva. We are one of the polluted caste. About 2000 years ago, the Brahmins colonized us they introduced the caste system. The Brahmins of Kerala are called Nambudaris. The Nambudaris became our teachers, our priests and historians who taught us to see ourselves through their eyes. And in their eyes, under the eyes of caste system, we became one of those caste that you might know of as the Untouchables. We were farmers and toady tappers, as in we made palm wine. We were enslaved until the early 1800s. In 1813, the Irawa women, together with Puleya, Paraya, and other Dalit women, they even started organizing and revolting for their right to cover their breast. This revolt eventually became the Reformation Movement, a movement that was against the caste system and feudalism. Nangeli, an Irawa woman, she cut off her breast and she submitted it to the tax collector. And this led to the abolition of breast tax. Yet she's not, she's not taught to us as a reformer, because reformers are all men. We always had women like Mangeli, but the British liked to think that they rescued us from caste oppression. They had already arrived in the region by 1583. Kerala at the time consisted of the princely states of Travancore and Kuchin and Malabar coast. At the time, we didn't really have the institution of marriage in our caste. It was common for Arab women to have multiple partners. By the mid-late 1800s, the British began to intervene and they said we could cover our breast and enter schools if we converted to Christianity. And a lot of us converted to Christianity and the rest of us assimilated into Englishness because. It came with the possibility of education and employment and we would no longer have to work for the feudal landlords. The British tricked us into thinking that Victorian morality would emancipate us from Brahmanical patriarchy. And by Victorian morality, I mean attaching women's worth to chastity, having an arranged marriage, the father of the bride paying dowry to the groom, the wife moving into the husband's family, the notion of housewives and providing husbands. They also made it seem like if women spoke English, it meant that they are emancipated. So the British civilizing mission in a way co-opted the anti-caste movement and they also gave us this illusion of caste mobility. But all we really got was the right to imitate the Brahminical Patriarchy and the Victorian Patriarchy. I feel a certain kind of pressure to say everything about the history of women from my caste because a history has been lied about for so long. There is a lot of rage and grief and it has such a direct impact on the way The ways in which we see ourselves, our sense of self. Nambudiris, the Menans, the Nayas, the upper caste, they did that to us. They continue to do that to us. The British missionaries did that to us when they first arrived. The education system that they set in place did that to us. The ways in which that education system continues to be what educates us even though we are technically politically independent it does that to us it continues to distort our history and there's a part of me that wants to go on a roof and scream this to the world and i say world and i do not say just people in kerala because because white researchers historians writers movie makers they continue to study us like we are some insects in a laboratory and write about us and tell our story tell our history and they continue to distort it actively and we continue to listen to them and i think for me that's really the most heartbreaking part that we continue to listen to them we continue to listen to the oppressor to find out our past and our present um. Yeah.
3: Can you hear the subaltern speak? Are you willing to pass the mic instead of centering yourself as the authors of marginalized people's stories? Are you willing to decenter yourself epistemically? Are you willing to prioritize reparations?
1: Sometimes I wonder why they try so hard to silence us to pathologize our pain and our anger How self-resenting does one need to be in order to want to do that in order to seek sadistic pleasure by inflicting such violence? But when we refuse to be silent when we tell our stories we realize how many of us are out there and we see our power We realize how little and silly the oppressors are. We get to love and heal and laugh together. I am grateful to know several women who refuse to be buried and refuse to be infantilized. From them I learn other ways of living and being. The other audacious women who could not and cannot be silenced. The ones who refuse to contain their rage. They insist that we can find our community by doing just that. By refusing, and so I listened to them.
2: I always like to pretend that, you know, I'm up in heaven, and, you know, God is asking me, well, Bill, what was it that you liked the most? And I would always answer that what I most wanted for myself was to be able to be free.
1: This episode was created, written, produced, and edited by me, Bhavani Kunyalakshmi, Joanna Fay was the executive producer, Brett Lashua and Will Brem were the producers. Thanks to Fred Brem, who read the quote by Noam Chomsky, and Fran Wavros, who read the quote by Martha Nussbaum. Michael Rumbelau, thanks for recording something that didn't become a part of the final episode. The theme music was composed by the brilliant artist MC Cooper. The song was composed and rapped by MC Cooper. I thank my teacher Leila Kadewal, who generously offered her time to be interviewed. I also thank J. Devika for offering her time for an interview that didn't become a part of the final episode. I thank my other teachers who guided me in the process, Bell Hooks, Victoria Shavanmi, Hannah Rettlack, Sharmila Rake, Sara Motta, Sarah Ahmed, and Audrey Lord. I also thank the people who supported me in this journey, Siddhartha, Asya Ahmed, Nabia Khan, Sara Attar, Vithukunyama, Mark Sebastian, Janine, Romi, Saumia, Aparna, Antoine, Silfat Leila, Gargi Haritagam Chandu, Siriz, Nicole Pearson, and the Bible community in Berlin. Full credits for the episode can be found in the show notes of FreshitPodcast.com. You'll also find a transcript of the episode with a selection of resources for further exploration. Freshet Flux is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, Nurag, the Sachdeh Family Fund and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshet by visiting freshetpodcast.com slash donate. Please note that the opinions expressed on Freshet Flux are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Freshet, which takes no institutional position. If you liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to your podcast. Reviews really do help. Thank you for listening. I am Bhavani Kunyalakshmi and I hope you enjoyed the episode.